From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm your host, Ryan Gore, and I am kind of sleepy. <laughs> I am joined by one man and one man only, the managing editor of Central Source and part of the editorial team over at OK Player, Brandon Hill from a scale of 1 to 53. How tired are you? From a scale of 1 to 53. I'm going to go with a negative 5, considering I've had like oh. 6 cups of coffee today. Um, my body is is tired, but my mind will not let me uh, will not let me rest. Won't let me stop. See, I ran out of green tea, so I'm usually more like caffeinated up generally throughout the day. There's a bit more matter in the system, but um, not today. I'm I'm on I'm on a low ebb, but <laughs> we're here to give a high quality episode to the people. Um, uh, what you got going on? Anything to promote for you in terms of your journalism life? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm back on the editorial team at OK Player, doing things, uh, stuff and things. Um, a lot of you know production stuff. A lot of the the really really fun, exciting things about about journalism that that really drive people to the industry. You know, um, other other than that. <laughs> My my actual like writing output has been very very slow so far this year, um, but that is changing. I've got some very exciting bylines coming up uh, that I can't wait to share. But it's a little a little too early to to put that out into the universe. So I'm gonna hold on to that until probably the next podcast episode, and hopefully it'll be out by then. But uh, new publications, new bylines in print. That's always exciting. So hey, love it definitely like building right we're building we're getting there bit by bit every piece every little bit of experience it's yeah you you haven't haven't done itself, anything right? anything exciting recently have you not, not i have, don't think i've seen anything you know exciting come out of uh come out of your department you know recently so we can just skip no, skip no, past nothing. that right we'll just go straight to, <laughs> yeah. straight to what we've been listening to <laughs> yeah nothing to promote no um yeah, I have a piece in Rolling Stone, which is crazy. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that we bring Rolling Stone pieces like a lot to the point where we had to stop. Like Charlie had to tell us to stop. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the fact that I have an article in that publication is really cool. Um, I wrote about Spiritual Away and Miyazaki winning the Oscar for that movie and how that kind of set in chain set up a chain of events which kind of, um, yeah, exposed the Academy's America first bias, how it was put in the piece. Um, so yeah, that was amazing. And I have lots of tasks, like I have stuff to write. Sometimes like you go through like a couple of months where you just don't have anything, mm. like no pitches land, nothing comes off. You know that like, you know Todd and um, Bojack Horseman, when he's like, hooray, a task. Like, <laughs> every time I land a pitch, I'm like that. But now I have like five tasks to do. And it's like, ah, okay, I have actual work. <laughs> like, you know. Um, but yeah, definitely stuff coming out. Um, excited to get all the stuff out over the next couple of months. Got some exciting things coming for sure. Um, but yeah, with that, we have a really fun 
show today. Two of us, so two pieces. We have a piece on the sped up remix, kind of remixing songs, speeding them up, why we do that and the history of that. And then we have um, a dissection of the narrative that the strokes changed everything and the idea of centering white men with guitars at the center of like rock music. But before we get into that, Brandon, what have you been listening to? Um, it's actually been like a lot of like Lucy's, a lot of singles lately. Um, the new Vic Mensa, which obviously we talked about last podcast, that Strawberry Louis Vuitton song with Thundercat is really, really good. I finally actually, I got around to the Dende album. Um, and I definitely want to give that a shout because Dende is an R&B artist, um, super indie kind of underground, a guy we covered several times at Central Sauce, um, in same camp as like Chris Patrick and Byrie. Um, so it's always been really exciting to kind of see the growth out of those three and like other people that, you know, we used to cover pretty steadily on Central Sauce. And this, I got to say, is my favorite project from Dende for sure. Um, really well polished, really well rounded. Um, and there's a, a song actually on there that I thought of um, with context to this Strokes piece we're going to talk about later um, called Wish You Well, where they kind of do this like like hip hop flip on like an old kind of like rock song, um, which you know, I was thinking of throughout reading that um, Strokes piece. Other than that, um, you know, shout out Mickey for putting me onto the Creed Three soundtrack. Uh, that Earth mm. Gang song, the one on there with Earth Gang and Buddy, made me so excited because I felt like I hadn't really heard Earth Gang like that in so long. Um, you know, if you're in, you know, in on our like central sauce kind of group chats you'll know that like i'm a huge huge uh fan of earth gang but have been you know pretty consistently disappointed by a lot of the stuff that they've um put out recently and so this song for the dreamville soundtrack or for the creed soundtrack with buddy um felt in a lot of ways kind of like a return to form and i've been bumping that a lot um it's got me really excited for hopefully you know a new earth gang album that kind of like builds on that sound rather than some of the other stuff they've been up to lately other than that um stevie nicks on the gorillas album singing about interlocking cluster bombs is a must listen for sure uh if you haven't already which it's gorillas so you probably have <laughs> um yeah like charlie said in the chat creed 3 was a good film as well i really enjoyed that one um i need to check out that song then because i feel like earth gang have drifted away from me too recently mm. with like some of the recent recent releases haven't really stuck. So yeah, I'd have to check that out. It's really good. Um, yeah, for me, um, I don't know if this happened in between the last podcast or not, but the De La Soul catalog got on streaming mm-hmm. finally. Yeah. So I've been uh, yeah just bumping random tracks throughout there. Just happy that that more people can go and experience that music because the whole like native tongue native tongue movements is such like an invaluable part of hip-hop history that I think everyone should just dive into. Um, and it's cool that all of that is just available in one place for people to listen to now, so that's amazing. Um, what else have I been listening to? I literally just looked at my thing as well. Oh, there's a, so we're recording this on Thursday the 16th. Tomorrow is sees the release of Yves Tumor's new album. God, what's it called again? It's a really long name. Um, it's called Praise the Lord Who Choose But Which Does Not Consume and there's like an extra bit in brackets which Apple Music cuts off but um, the singles for that have been really amazing and I've been revisited revisited his old album 
um, Heaven to a Tortured Mind, which has just become a seminal album for me. I think everyone should listen to that. It's amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited for that album. We'll probably have bumped it a lot by the time this episode goes up. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. Oh, Persona 5. Persona 5 soundtrack too, <laughs> which Brandon said he wants some wax. Have you been, have you been playing Persona 5? In, in between your bouts no. of, of Tetris streaming... Oh yeah, twitch.tv slash Ryan G. Gore. Um, no, I haven't been playing a lot of Persona 5. I played it a bit over Christmas, but I haven't really just sat down with it. Because I feel like it's one of those games you just want to properly, you know, fall into. Hmm. But I've only really been playing games to kind of fill gaps in time rather than sit down with them, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, I, I plan to before too long, because what i've played of it i'm really really interested in yeah it's definitely um, i mean part partly due to like the length of it but it's definitely a game that it kind of warrants like picking up and putting down picking up and putting down picking up and putting down um and the thing that always kind of draws me back to it is genuinely just like the vibe of it you know like the music and the mm-hmm. um even like the the like screen menus and the heads-up display and everything is just like so aesthetically perfect that that really is like the drawing point to get back into it every time soundtrack's incredible yeah yeah it's so unique it's so unique i don't think i've played a game that looks like this in terms of just its visual palette yeah really cool and listeners if you want to hear more about the music check out uh in search of sauce video game music volume two one two i don't think it was one one of them (laughs) just search in search of source like vgm and they'll all come up and you can look in the uh descriptions yeah i remember we did we did the soundtrack. Uh, we did a piece on the soundtrack for that. Yeah. Wow. We need to do another one of those. Yeah, it's, it's been, been a while. Time, yeah. Isn't it? Hmm. Okay. Cool. So let's go ahead with the show and jump into these pieces. Then uh, the first one up is the one that I brought. So here we have the rise of the sped up remix by Rihanna Cruz, and this is from Vulture. So this is a kind of a listicle, uh, and Charlie said that was volume one, by the way the video music cheers charlie um so yeah we have a listicle here that kind of charts the past and present of sped up music kind of in general it transitions from songs that were the most notable and influential to the songs that are dominating tiktok today and that's what kind of grounds the piece it's like the current trend of sped up tiktok sounds getting like tons of millions of views um and this list kind of serves as a study on why like chipmunked vocals attract people um and i thought it was really interesting and really really fascinating that like the chipmunks is not exactly how it all started but how it first got popularized as this kind of gimmick thing um we saw like uh an artist release sped up music from under that moniker which kind of spiraled into this whole thing. And if you ask about like Alvin and the Chipmunks now, it's not something people consider seriously. It's a gimmick, it's like corny, but it's simultaneously part of modern internet culture, part of how younger people enjoy music, part of sample culture, and part of like an artist strategy to get a number one song, the whole idea of chipmunking the vocals. So even though that initial like <laughs> that initial source is considered corny now, it's strangely foundational to um, 
the music landscape today. Um, but the piece also does this really great thing that we see often, where it's left open, it's left open-ended without feeling incomplete. So Rihanna poses theories on why this trend is accelerating so much now, or more explains why certain people would gravitate towards this sound for different reasons. Not every listicle can like actually do that. Not every listicle, like most of them are just kind of like information givers or opinion givers and nothing more. For a listicle to make you kind of um, not just tell you, oh, here's the history of this thing, here's how it happened, but also have that question of why hanging over the entire piece. The piece in its text tells you why, tells you how, sorry, how it happened, but the why will ruminate on your head from the intro when you're kind of taking in this history of like, oh, here's this Kanye sample that in the 2000s started this trend, and here's this Sophie song which it popularized it for this generation, and now here's this Pink Panthers, um Ice Spice song that's like going crazy right now. It's like, the question of why is never definitively answered, but it will be kind of playing on your mind for the entire piece. And I think that's a really skillful thing to do, to be able to do on the part of Rihanna. So, uh, yeah, Brandon, what did you think of this one? Yeah, uh, first of all, I want to shout out the graphic designer uh, who made the cover art for this piece because it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, you got the chipmunks, like, superimposed on this very, like, Marvel movie-esque, like, Avengers a symbol of of sped up song artists like on the cover of this um, which was really you know yeah Dune 2 looks amazing <laughs> um so yeah I mean like you said you know the the really like attractive part of this piece was sort of the the history of these things um and I gotta admit like going into it that I didn't really expect that at first I, I thought like oh like here's just this like novelty piece that's just gonna do a quick hit on um, this TikTok trend of all the new music, you know, that that's, you know, being hit with this sort of like sped up thing. And it, it'd be a very like trend heavy slanted piece. Um, but then there's this paragraph in the intro that I want to read. And I forget which one it is um, that talks about. OK, yeah, it's the very last one. It says, as with anything new, this trend has also managed to raise some concerns. If it continues, does the idea of the professional remix DJ fade out? Do the subgenres of Ghetto House and Juke, which were spawned by black artists in Chicago speeding up house records, become commodified without us even realizing it? Um, so it, 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 it draws you into so much more than just the recent TikTok trend of these sped up songs. Um, it establishes, you know, starting all the way back in 1958, it establishes how, you know, this trend of speeding things up, um, which, you know, originates in like, literally like DJing, you know, on vinyl records, it talks about speeding up like the RPM of a thing um, to like remix and change a song, how it not only was like a novelty, but it, it eventually like branches off into various subgenres of music because people like the sound and the style that much um, that they start creating like original subgenres that are based on, you know, some of these really old sped up songs. And I thought that that was a really, really thoughtful approach to you know a story that easily could have just been like okay like what's going on with this trend on tiktok what are the young kids doing write a thing about it you know um so there was a lot of time and an effort i think put into really like cataloging like each major kind of example of this throughout the decades and then 
you know, putting it together um, into the context of the new trend. Do you think there's a specific reason why Gen Z gravitates towards that sped up sound? Um, I mean, TikTok is definitely a part of it. I don't know if, if Gen Z gravitates to the sound so much more than other generations as much as Gen Z has, you know, the tools to amplify and do something with it more. Um, a part of it, you know, if you think about TikTok being, you know, quick, short videos um, and you want to use songs that have some kind of like lyrical catchphrase. I think all the time of that um, article we read about Ice Spice, um, what talked about one of the reasons that she picked up so quick on Gen Z with um, kids on TikTok is because she uh, literally writes her bars in a way that where she's thinking of like Instagram captions. So her bars are very, you know, segmentable to be used in, you know, a video. You, you get one line or two lines and you have all the context you need to add like whatever kind of comedic effect you're looking to add to your video. And in the same way, you know, speeding up a classic song gives you like, you know, kind of crams into that whatever TikTok time limit, you know, the one minute or the 45 seconds, um, you know, it can give you whatever, you know, length of a chorus or hook of a popular song um, that you need to sort of like accent the whatever you're adding to the video. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing that I like was trying to consider is this with this is like is it a love for fast-paced music or is it a familiar song with a different twist on it that's enjoyable about it and i think i decided on the latter it's like mm. having a song released understanding that song being familiar with it and then simply changing the bpm giving you kind of a different feel to the song and like having these familiar lyrics there's this kind of familiar vibe shifted up a couple notches um from like a, a minor to a major key like it mentions in the piece and how that kind of twist on something familiar feels novel and feels like it kind of like scratches your brain a bit you know like if you really love a song it scratches your brain well already but it kind of wears off after a while like if you play a song fifty thousand times in a row you're going to get bored but simply speeding it up can completely refresh that feeling and like charlie's saying in the chat that's why sampling is so love like that's why we love a soul sample we love a sped up thing to re yeah exactly to refresh it to bring it into like a modern context um so yeah i think it's really fascinating another fascinating thing and something another reason and a reason why i love this podcast is that you can kind of chart where music is at depending on the things we happen to bring up every episode. And we bring up TikTok every single episode. Like <laughs> every single episode, you have a piece where TikTok is like an, a foundational part of it. It's it's inescapable. And we've like, uh, as it's like kind of mentioned in the piece, TikTok might be shut down in like five months or so. So who knows like how much of the music musical infrastructure is going to be built upon this thing before it know, combusts. But um, I think it's fascinating that we talk about it so, so like, talk about it this much. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things, too, that's, like, kind of worth pointing out here, too, is that it's not just, like, every single song, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> um, but it's not like every single song sped up is finding success. You know, it's not like it's just a blanket way to take any music, just speed it up, throw it out there, and get a gold record out of it, you know. And one of the best examples of that um, I believe is when they talk about 
the summer is it the summer walker album um where she had a few songs it was either summer walker or pink panthers i think it was summer walker uh she had a few songs from the album that got popular like sped up on tiktok and so then the label was like oh okay let's go ahead and take the entire album and speed it up um and the the writer here writes about how like a lot of those were just kind of a miss you know they didn't sound mm-hmm. as good so there is like a really interesting part of this where it's like oh it it was the summer walker album but i have a point to make about the pink panthers as well um that builds on that and it's that you know pink panthers i'm gonna find the exact line here because it's something about how pink panthers is typically like you know slowed down kind of sound when it is sped up like adds a new um quality to it so hold on let me find that in all of its jittery ringtone-esque 2000s glory part two serves as a bridge between the hackiness of sped up trend hopping and genuine artistic needle pushing using the remixed production as the track's new spine it becomes a more jingly earworm while the vocals and ice spices verse stick to a normal pace this makes the song sing quicker than it is and may set a precedent for future chart toppers to come and who better to usher in a new time shifted era than the queen of the 18 minute album yeah and like charlie just said in the chat um chopped and screwed fancy punch in the air right now which is funny but it's also a point that the piece makes like as you said with the summer walker album simply speeding up a song is not enough because most of them are going to sound terrible like there has to be a specific format to a song that we to put we can just speed it up and it still sounds good. A lot of the time you're just gonna have vocals and drums clashing into each other and it's just not gonna sound good. You see, I hear a lot of time in TikToks like a song would be sped up and it's like, oh no, they should have they should have switched over a bit before they sped that up because <laughs> that's that doesn't sound right in that BPM. But um there is a skill to it and I think the fact that kind of like reducing it down to like oh it's just a sped up version of the songs put it out does take stuff away from people who do this professionally and able to make it sound good in multiple ways rather than just changing the speed of it in in garage band you know and in honor of this piece uh this in search of sauce episode will be released at 1.5 times speed so that you can get all the information much faster. <laughs> no, they're actually, I, th- I found that funny because there actually is, um, in the intro of the piece, um, the writer compares, yeah. compares like one of the qualities of this that's attractive is that um, younger people can consume more music by listening to it faster and compared it to like listening to podcasts on 1.5 times speed. Um, and I thought that was kind of funny to me because it's not exactly, it's not the same thing, right? It's not like, Oh, like if as a it's like okay imagine like as a music journalist and it's friday release day and you're like oh god i got so many albums to get through today so you listen to them all on, <laughs> on 1.5 times speed and then like write the pitchfork reviews like it's not the same right. thing you know as like listening to a, a sped up podcast or even i think yeah. you've done that with some of the longer articles that i've sent in the podcast right you put them into like an audio yeah. thing and then 1.5 times them um which is like a legitimate way to kind of get more information in a shorter amount of time but you know does not necessarily apply to listening to more music i think it is a bit different yeah but but it's like the contentification of music right like it's about consuming as much as you can rather than taking it as it is you know that's like doesn't netflix have an option to watch shows and movies on higher speeds does it really it's demented yeah yeah it's demented it's it's insane it like that's anti the art that's like the intention of the art right it's being taken away but um yeah if people are seeing 
music as just content to consume, like, oh, Taylor Swift released a new album, I have to be part of the conversation, let me just quickly run through it. You know, maybe back in the day, you would just listen to 30 seconds and think, oh, no, I got it. I'm going <laughs> on to the next one. <laughs> or, but I guess now, you just listen on double speed or whatever. I don't know. <clears throat> um, as the only Gen Z member on the podcast, I will... Um, say that I don't think that's a big reason. I don't think that's a big reason. I think more it's got to do with just, like, they're better soundtracks to an extremely chaotic world. With Gen Z music, I feel like it's either extremely dreamy and extremely vibey or extremely congested and chaotic. And I feel like sped-up songs is kind of like the marriage between the two. You have, like, I don't know. Bad Habit by Steve Lacey, right? It was kind of like a slow... Yeah, kind of a slow jam. Sped Up, it's also extremely popular. And I think it appeals to like both sides of what people in my generation and younger are experiencing. And it's just like a constant barrage of information being thrown at you from all ang- at all angles and needing reprieve from that, but also wanting something that speaks to that... Um, and it, yeah, it kind of satisfies both criteria at once. But yeah, any final points on that piece before we move on? Uh, no, I think I think we summed it up. Um, just how it, it's interesting, like this also kind of just fits into the narrative where like young kids on TikTok are like rediscovering something that they think is like new and innovative. I think the same thing, exact mm. thing happened with Chopped and Screwed um, that we maybe have talked about mm-hmm. on the podcast or it's just like an article that I read in the past, but you know, like this, this, like these trends that like develop because of how, in a lot of ways, how sped up the development of trends are on apps like TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're sped up so much that they evolve and people think like, Oh, they originate here. Um, so it was really, really nice to get like this great historical, uh, perspective, you know, in this piece that adds to like, yes, like this is kind of a cool, nifty unique new thing that's happening but it has roots you know in all these old things and Mm. the same reasons that people like it today are the reasons that you know it got its start here and and developed all these like sub genres yeah you also have just a straight up uneducated people thinking they invented something every other month you know (laughs) somebody's gonna take a, a, a chopped and screwed song and like speed it up and be like whoa this is a like this is a brand new song like and it's literally just like the original <laughs> recording of the song. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, so that was the rise of the sped up remix by Rihanna Cruz for Vulture. All right. So for the next piece, Brandon, do you want to introduce? Yes, sir. So this piece is titled The Problem with the Strokes Changed Everything Narrative About Aughts Indie by Robin James for It's Her Factory Newsletter, um, which is her newsletter. So what I really like about this piece right off the bat um, is that it's taking a look at the reputation of the Strokes and their impact on the music scene uh, through a really serious media critique. And this is where I get in my like super nerdy, like academic journalism bag. Um, All of the arguments made in the piece are based on and supported with specific examples of media coverage. 
And this thing, this kind of thing exists, you know, all over the place in academic journalism, uh, Columbia Review, Harvard Neiman Lab, like various other publications. I think ProPublica um, has a column on media critique. Um, Robin James herself often does really strong, informative uh, media critique threads on Twitter, which is actually how I found her work. Um, but I've never seen this kind of approach in music journalism. And after seeing it, it makes so much sense. You know, like a lot of these, and Mickey can, actually loves a good nostalgia piece, so he can talk about it. Um, but a lot of these pieces, you know, they they use nostalgia as a vehicle for like commentary on something, right? They go back and they they look at something and they comment on in a way that's often sort of just like a um, recontextualizing a review of an album based on, you know, everything we've known since its release. Um, but this, you know, is primarily like a media critique first and then, you know, a music journalism piece second, uh, which in a lot of ways makes it very, very difficult to argue with if you have, you know, an opposing view um, because the writer here isn't, you know, isn't saying like, oh, like the Strokes music just wasn't that good. Everybody forgot about this song that was really bad. You know, they're, they're taking a really structured um, argument and putting it together based on, you know, a critique and analysis of um, media at the time that was talking about this kind of Strokes chained everything narrative. So just to kind of rebuild her argument here a little bit for the listener who hasn't read the piece, um, she starts off talking about, you know, this current growing nostalgia for 2000s indie music, which, by the way, is what ought means. I had to look that up. Ought is, is a, <laughs> applies to, like, the decade of 2000 to 2009. So. I didn't know that, that was a UK only thing. Okay. Is it a UK only thing? I didn't know that. Because okay. I, uh, I think Robin's from the UK. I okay. remember she, she mentioned, like, listening to Radio 1 and stuff in the piece. So, yeah, I think oughts is a, is a UK thing. Okay. Well, That's now funny. now I know. That is the period from 2000 to 2009. Oh. Um. But so she talks about this growing contemporary nostalgia for 2000s indie music um, and sort of within that nostalgia is this narrative of, you know, oh, the strokes changed everything, right? Like people now in their nostalgia are looking back at the music and being like, oh my God, like the strokes changed everything. Um, and her key point here is that this narrative is born from the current nostalgia, um, but not representative of the actual time period. Uh, a quote here, she says, uh, a 2001 article in The Fader snarkily observes that following the fuzzy logic of phenom-based journalism, there are already more articles about the strokes that cover them being hyped than there are ones that hype them. Fast forward 10 years, and that narrative only intensifies in strength. So right off the bat, you know, she's pointing out that it's one of those like weird like phenomenon things where because a bunch of people like hype something up, a bunch even more people, you know, go and like, oh, the hype is overblown, you know, and then pile on um, and creates kind of that like chain effect. Uh, she brings examples that show that the Strokes were lauded for being something other than new metal, specifically, um, which you know, new metal was openly criticized at the time, even for the way that it fed into like toxic white uh, male masculinity, um, Woodstock '99, etc. So what the Strokes really did was bring back rock in a way that was culturally acceptable and palatable um, to recenter and sing the praises of white men within the narrative of like contemporary popular music. Uh, she then kind of extends that argument to Olivia Rodrigo and Willow Smith um, in a sort of like lessons we could learn way. Um, and, and a quote she's talking about here that speaks to that, which is, you know, women of color are seen as legitimately occupying positions of traditional white patriarchal authority so long as they do so 
in ways that don't otherwise upset the overall patriarchal racial capitalist distribution of property and personhood, um, which is a mouthful to read, but it like on paper reads, reads very well. Uh, there's this underlying point here that like the genre purists and the people who, you know, through this vein of nostalgia are talking about, you know, quote unquote, like a return to real rock um, are actually just saying or asking for a return to a time when white men and their music were the standard by which the quality of a decade's music was determined. Um, she ends on the point that if we're going to be nostalgic, uh, let's be conscious of the narratives that build that nostalgia and not use that nostalgia to kind of like paint over, you know, other artists or paint over the, the truth of a scenario because objectivity in a lot of ways is often determined by, um, you know, especially in the past, determined by the narrative of, you know, white men um, within a power structure who have the power to determine what is objectivity, right? Hmm. Yeah, I think the point you made at the start about this piece being difficult to argue with is like the biggest merit of the piece. Like the way Robin structures it, um, talking about nostalgia and kind of like toxicity is really, really difficult as a writer because you're like always the wrong word choice away from touching a nerve really bad on someone, you know, <laughs> or someone not really grasping the point of the piece and just being a bit like butthurt that you said that the thing that they were nostalgic for was like, oh, it was isn't as good as they thought it was or whatever, you know? Like, it's so easy to fall into that side of things or for people to understand it that way. But the way that Rob instructs it kind of stops that from happening. Like, your pen has to be so sharp, mm -hmm. has to consider all the angles to dismantle, like, nostalgia, which is so baked into people's psyche. And like we talked about, like you talked about, like, the narrative Robin goes for isn't just about the strokes, but it's about how we see an indie rock band. Like, when we picture an indie rock band in our heads, why is it four white guys with guitars, you know? And the breakdown of those people who have been kind of forgotten through history and, like, the people that nostalgia omits because they weren't being played on the radio as much as, um, um, like, the Strokes and people like that. Like, um, that kind of breakdown is extremely vital and like recontextualizing people's nostalgia which is so hard to do it's so really it's so difficult and i think that yeah she did a really brilliant job with that um and then to kind of bring it to the modern day it's kind of beautiful to see how this like younger generation and waves have like used this 2000s nostalgia um to kind of reclaim it back into the hands of women of color and women from ethnically diverse backgrounds. And yeah, the article kind of rides this wave of reclamation, right? Like taking back the narrative, which I think was really powerful. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, right right, like off the top of your, um, what you were saying there about how it's really, really easy in a piece like this to like turn someone off with the wrong word choice or something like that. Um, and really like, she never really in this piece, you know, comes out and calls the strokes like overrated or says like, you're all remembering it wrong. The music was actually shitty. You know, that's not at all like the stance that she takes here. She, 
in a lot of ways, like acknowledges that like, yes, they were making good music, but so were so many other people um, and doing it in more sort of like, I, I guess she's more attacking the narrative that like the strokes came onto the scene and changed everything. Right. Which is, you know, right there in the title. Um, and she, one of the, one of the pieces of support that she uses to point that out is um, Charlie is over here, like typing indie rock bands into the chat, just completely de- derailing me here in the middle of a, <laughs> but um, she talks about how, you know, a, a stroke song is mashed up with um, Christina Aguilera. And I'm going to read this here. Um, this demonstrated that Christina Aguilera and the Strokes were in perfect harmony. And this struck people even as late as 2009 as strange. The Strokes were proper rockers, white guys with guitars. And the thought that one of their songs was basically exactly the same as a Latina ex Mouseketeers pop hit suggested that raucous prejudices had no bias in the actual music itself. So a lot of this is about the narrative that you know, white men owned indie rock music or were the standard um, by which indie rock music should be judged. And by extension, you know, the the strokes um, at their time being lauded as this, you know, genre breaking return of music, like, you know, indie rock is back, rock is back, um, was therefore extending, you know, this, this narrative that um, white men owned indie rock into a larger, you know, recentering of like white men in popular music as a whole yeah yeah <laughs> i never turned to add to that um yeah do you have any other uh notes to make on this piece um i mean writing style tone just like really tight really tight throughout um strong argument great examples it, it really makes me think like like now seeing you know a piece of media media criticism like this being used to like recontextualize like a music narrative that I feel like there's so much more potential for other like similarly styled media critiques um, to approach, you know, Mm. to approach music. Like it's definitely something I want to see more of and even something that I'm thinking about, you know, what, like what other ways, you know, can this be used to approach, you know, various like different narratives or even various different like, because I guess this one still is mostly pointing its critique at culture rather than pointing the critique at the media. Um, but there's another angle to take on this as well that talks about, you know, what what we as music journalists are actually, you know, contributing and creating uh, when we are, you know, caught up in the current album cycles and things like that. Um, when we're caught up in very, like, commentary-based coverage, you know, when we're not just talking about the music, but we're talking about people talking about the music. Um, you know, anytime there's a, a bad pitchfork review, of course, you know, people jump all over it. Uh, you know, they pile on, they create these like commentary chains. Uh, and I think we don't often, mm. you know, consider what those commentary chains, you know, kind of do to nostalgia down the line. You know, who who gets the dominant voice? Um, whose narrative, you know, wins out in the end in this sort of like, battle for you know attention and and media space and airwaves you know yeah yeah but like we said it takes so much skill to do something like this um so yeah shout out to robin for something that like as you said there's not a lot of pieces like this and there's definitely potential for more but it's so difficult (laughs) for sure okay so that was the problem with the strokes chain the the problem with the strokes changed everything narrative about 
Orts Indie by Robin James for the It's Her Factory newsletter, it's her factory.substack.com. And before that in the show, we had the Rise of the Sped Up Remix by Rihanna Cruz for Vulture. Uh, thank you so much to the writers that contributed today. We had a great time talking about these pieces. Uh, be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you can rate podcasts. It really helps us out. Uh, and Brandon, do you have anything else to add? Um, if you're a writer or if you're following other writers, send us your stuff. Send us their stuff. Uh, we want to check it out, possibly feature it on the podcast. As all writers ourselves, um, you know, we know how hard it is sometimes to get your work seen, um, to get bylines, get picked up, um, build a following, and we are here to help, possibly. <laughs> yeah, and I did say iTunes earlier is Apple Podcasts. Forgive me, it's late. I've Unforgivable. Unforgivable. You, you guys still what I was doing on that Tetris stream, man. It takes a lot of <laughs> mental strength, you know? I need you to fire the Tetris stream <laughs> back up because I have a long night ahead of me of checking various tasks off my to-do list. and I, I You need... can re-watch it. I'm going to bed. You can re-watch <laughs> that stream. <laughs> uh, okay, but that is it. I think we are done for today. Thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, see you on the next one. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. This episode of Research Source featured Ryan Gore and Brandon Hill of the Central Square Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Amp Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Chill Music for busy use. This has been Central Source from Fifth Amp Podcast Network Production. Thanks to Basti, Chill Music, Central Source for Fenement, and concert company episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for source.